Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, and thanks for joining us again. I'm Marco Palmieri. And I'm Nicole Otto. Nice to have you back, Nicole. Before we get into our story, can I ask you a question? Do you ever feel like you've been haunted? Oh, yes. Absolutely. I felt like I've been haunted. I mean, I was a scaredy cat kid, so all the time, like anytime there was a towel hanging on my door, ghost. Anytime I went into the, like, anytime I went anywhere. Are you the oldest? <laughs> no, I'm the, uh, I'm the youngest. So did you have older siblings tormenting you and scaring you? Uh-huh. And, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My um, When my sister and I, like, had to share a bed on trips, you should, like, turn to me and give me what she called the evil smile. And oh, then, like, yeah, nice. she, you know. I love um, the evil smile. But I do feel like sometimes you go to different places and they have like an energy or mm-hmm. or something there that you can pick up on. Like mm. even um, Hampton Court in England, mm. there is this hallway where uh, Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's fifth wife, was begging for her life and she passed out in this hallway. Uh-huh. And if you stand there, it's said that like you can you start to feel woozy or you start to feel faint. Mm. And my mom swears that it's happened to her when she was there. Wow. Um, but I, I do think that maybe it's not so much a ghost, but there is like an energy. Well, today we begin an eerie two-part ghost story about an elderly spinster in Kolkata. Please enjoy A Shade of Dusk, Part 1, written by Indra Pramit Das and voiced by Sharomi Arsario. I first learned to write in the dark, when I was a little girl, scribbling secrets under my blanket or just under the mosquito net during summer, after the hurricane lamps were blown out. Electricity didn't flow like water back then. I took pages from my flimsy school notebook to make up this diary. My sister, Paloma, gave me some from her notebook, too. I hid the pages under our mattress. I wrote how much I hated the schoolmaster with his whip-thin cane and prickly temper, about how much my father shouted at my mother, about how I gave away bits of my lunch to the ducks, foxes and dogs by the road on the way home from school. My parents threw out the diary when they found it. They didn't want me keeping secrets in my room, Never mind that a room and a girl will keep secrets even without pages to store them. 
my reward for observing my parents' tyranny and for destroying perfectly good notebooks was a sore bottom from my father's stiff, cigarette-scented palm. Much later, I would keep a diary when I went to university to ward off the loneliness of foreign winters. After lights out, I would sometimes keep writing in the dark, guided by the memory of home where my sister was. Then I would mail her those pages as letters. She would write me back across the continents. But once she got married and pregnant, her telegrams came as rarely as new seasons. This diary is fresh. My niece Charu gave it to me as a birthday present because I told her that story of writing in the dark. She calls it a journal. She thinks I'm forgetting things more often now. I hate to admit it, but she might be right. She came by yesterday with my grandnephew, who turned nine recently. I call him Poton because he likes when I make potelet d'orma and send it over to their house. But I couldn't remember his real name. I felt embarrassed to ask Charu. I remember her other boy's real name, Sanjay. He's a teenager now, so he doesn't come over often, always off doing homework or spending time with his school friends. While Potol watched cartoons on the TV, Charu went to the kitchen and bustled around there like she does. I heard her telling Kalpana, who was making dinner, to empty the garbage bags from the trash can more often because of the stench. When she came back to the table, her nose was wrinkled. Loki Mashi, it smells bad in here. You should open the windows more often, she said. I couldn't smell anything but the frying cumin from the kitchen, mingling unpleasantly with the smoke from the mosquito coil, burning in one corner of the living room. I said I opened the windows all the time. She patted my hand and asked me if I needed anything. She was wearing a salwar kameez. Charu always wears a salwar kameez when she comes by to visit. It makes me wonder if she ever wears saris anymore. She looks so much like her mother, it feels strange. Like seeing a modern version of Pumpy. I do still remember that her real name is Poloma, seeing her young again. But Pumpy would never wear a salwar kameez. Are you writing in your new journal? Are you able to? Charu asked me. I told her, of course I was able to. I wasn't entirely decrepit. I told her writing during power cuts in the evening made me feel like a little girl again, because I could tell that's what she wanted to hear. She smiled. Such a lovely smile. No wonder she found a good man like Bijoy, pretty like her mother but she smiled too much around me. I told her not to tell her mother that I was writing a diary again, because she'd want to read it. I asked why Pumpy was still in her room anyway, why she was still sleeping so late into the evening. Charu flinched like I had hit her when I said that. She stopped meeting my eyes. I know that look. Something was wrong. Maybe they'd had a fight over the phone. Pumpy never did get over her children selling our family house after their father died. 
the place she'd lived all her life before this little flat. I let it go. We drank our tea and watched the TV along with Potol in silence. My nephew Pratik bought this set for me. It's small, but color. On the screen, there was a laughing cartoon skeleton in a hood with thick blue arms. I suppose he must have been death of a sort. I don't know what kind of things they let children watch these days. You're so ugly, Pumpy would say to me sometimes at night when we were children to scare me, because older siblings love scaring the younger. That is just the way of the world. Boys and girls will take power wherever they can find it. So will men and women. You'll never get married. You'll never have any babies because you need a husband to have babies, she would say. She said it in a rasping voice like a horrible creature. I would whimper in the moonlight at this terrible prophecy. If I screamed and complained to our parents, she would twist my ear later in revenge, her own cheek sore from my father's hand. But during the day, she would hold my hand on the walk back from school and shout at anyone who dared tease me, using her pretty looks and loud voice to stun them into submission. Six decades since writing in the dark of my childhood bedroom and Calcutta still has power cuts for hours. Load shedding, Pratik always announces when I bring it up, because of all the people getting air conditioners nowadays in summer. He explains, sounding very much like his father, Chandrasekhar, who also used to tell me obvious things in that professorial tone. So I write in the dark again. Now I have no parents to find this diary. I have Pratik and Charu, who are not children anymore, and I have my sister. They won't read this until I'm dead if I have my way. I like writing in the dark like before. These days I forget things, so it's good to put down my thoughts somewhere where they can't go away. It's like meditation, like Chandrasekhar used to do cross-legged on the floor on his mat. It gives me something to do during the load sheddings. I feel like a student again, writing my diary or papers into the night in my mother's knitted sweater, quilt wrapped around my shoulders against the Oxford chill frosting the window of my tiny room. Of course, now my stiff fingers aren't because of the damp cold of English weather, but because of arthritis. I need to take breaks often, but thank God I can still write. My knees, on the other hand, are like the ends of two chicken bones after someone's bitten off the cartilage. Charu always chides me when she sees me doing that at mealtimes, saying it'll pop out my false teeth, but it never does. I can barely bend my legs anymore. What can you do but think of the ways in which your body is breaking down in these silent hours of sweating? When the ceiling fan goes off and the air in the flat becomes still, I can smell something off, like Charu was saying. Kalpana takes out the garbage regularly. I've seen her do it. Maybe a lizard died in some corner. I'll have to tell her to look carefully for any sneaky corpses. I write when the power goes because there's no TV to watch my bungalow soaps or cricket matches, no light to read the newspapers and readers' digests by. 
It's something of a relief when it happens, except for the heat. That's why I sit by the window or the veranda to catch the evening breeze. It all gets too much for me nowadays. Televisions and stereos everywhere. All these channels. I like my soaps, but the news channels. Every time I turn to one, they're talking about this Gulf War. I wonder why we need to hear nonstop about Americans dropping bombs on these people in the Middle East, all the way here in India. There was a time we didn't need a TV to show us we were at war. Sometimes we'd turn on the radio and make bets about whether or not we'd be ruled by the Nazis or the Japanese instead of the Brits. But other times the only reminder we needed were the air raid drills, sirens calling across the sky like widows when the Pakistanis or the Chinese crossed our borders. I was studying in England during the Blitz, where it was more than just drills, though I was never under the planes. We never actually got bombed either in Calcutta or Oxford, but we knew it was a possibility. Now we're in peacetime, but the TV news wants to show us every war everywhere. It ruins my day every time, thinking how lucky I am to have lived this long. It was a mere stroke that took away Chandrasekhar, a blood clot in the brain sending the heart into a tailspin, not a bomb dropped in a city. The rest of us are still alive instead of scattered across rubble in pieces. Some of us, anyway. I've seen many of my oldest acquaintances and relatives turn into obituaries in recent years, of course. I check the paper every day just to make sure I still have the family I used to have. There is a phone in the flat which I use to talk to family and old acquaintances sometimes. I can't go out of the flat and go visit people or see a movie in the theatres or go out to eat very often because of my knees so the phone is a lifeline. But even as I long for it to ring every day, to have someone to talk to, I hate the splinters of pity in all of their voices when they ask how I'm doing, the secret gladness that they're not a spinster like me, the smug certainty that anyone with this fate must have done something to deserve it. At least we get to march towards death with our spouses safely by our side, and our sons and daughters two steps behind, I hear them not say. I have never gotten used to seeing Pompey without her husband. She seems so wretchedly alone, as if I too have faded away. She has never recovered from Chandrasekhar's death, or her children selling the house and packing her into this modern, shodden, multi-story building along with me, but then she looks like a mirror image of me, stooped in that chair at tea time, grumbling about the heat in summer, about the cold in winter, about how her children don't visit enough, about how I eat all the mishti in the fridge before she can have any, always complaining like I'm complaining right now. Chandrasekhar's absence is as vast as the loss of walls and a roof above our heads. The house we all lived in, gone the walls closing in on us in this small flat, despite it being higher above the streets. But Pampi should be grateful that she still has a son and a daughter and three grandchildren. I should be thankful too that I have a nephew and a niece. And a sister.
During Chandrasekhar's shroud, my tears were for my sister, not my brother-in-law, though I would, of course, miss his sturdy presence in our lives. It was her sorrow that was the knife in my chest. But when she gripped my hand like an infant grabbing a thumb and stared shell-shocked at the garlanded, monochrome photos of her husband through the stages of his life, clean-cut teenager, the solemn young man she was wed to, the white-haired patriarch with his crisp dress shirts and curtains, his horn-rimmed glasses and pipe. All I could think of was that Pumpy needed me now, more than ever before. My older sister finally needed me. She never held my hand like that again. If anything, she seems to need me even less now that her husband is gone because back then I gave her some respite from his relentlessly masculine presence. Now she sleeps and eats and sleeps and fades away into the walls of this place. And I remain no guardian of anything. Same as ever. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. I should check on Pumpy.
She was acting very strange just before the power went today. I woke up from my afternoon nap to go make tea because Kalpana stayed home sick. Chari dropped by some food in the morning, which was sweet, though I told her I am still capable of cooking. I walked into the living room and there was Pumpy, sitting in the rocking chair in the corner with all the lights turned off, even though the power wasn't gone. It was just evening and our living room windows don't face the sunset, so it was quite dark. I asked her why she hadn't turned on the lights. It was so dim I could barely even see her face under the cowl of her sari. Why she was wearing the sari with the cowl over her head in this heat like a new bride or a mourner, I don't even know. The ceiling fan was groaning above her head, turning slow circles with its blades. That smell like something rotting was quite strong, and I wondered if Pumpy wasn't bothered by it. I was about to ask her. When I reached for the switch, she said, don't turn on the light. I told her I could barely see. Did she want me to walk into furniture and break a hip? I thought I heard a little giggle from her, so soft it felt like a memory. A memory of when Paloma was 14 and I was 10, and she would wake me up in bed and stare at me, her face pale blue in the moonlight from the windows, and I would tell her to stop it, but her face wouldn't move, and I would be paralyzed in fear that she'd become a boot, that she'd died in her sleep and become a monster like in the stories. But I don't think she giggled. I haven't heard her laugh in a long time, let alone giggle. Looking at her sitting in the twilight gave me that feeling you get. There must be a word for it. That sadness that comes with the evening light, when sunlight begins to drain away and it's still just enough to see by, but not enough to keep the lights off. Again, I moved my hand towards the switch. Again, she said, don't turn on the light. She sounded like she had a cold, like her throat was thick with phlegm. I asked her what had gotten into her, that it was dark. You don't want to see me like this, she said. I asked her, like what, like an old woman? We're about 30 years too late for that, I told her, trying to get her to laugh. I'm no pretty young bride myself, Pumpy, I said to her. This made me think again of the way she was wearing her sari over her head, so it held the shadows under it, thick over her face. It made my heart skip a little. This odd little personal reminder of my perpetual identity as the spinster in my elder sister's shadow. I asked whether she was feeling unwell. I'm so ugly, she said. It sounded like she was smiling, though her face was invisible. No, I'm the ugly one, I nearly said. I've always hated when pretty people call themselves ugly, but she's an old woman now like me. Does that make her ugly? Perhaps that is the world we live in. I told her she used to call me ugly all the time when we were children. I asked, did she remember that? No. Do you remember? What, I asked. You don't remember the good things I do for you. I told her that wasn't true, that I remembered her reading to me from books when I was young, and taking me out with money sneaked away from our parents' purses to get coffee in the streets, knocking down sour rain-wet mangoes from trees with stones and sharing them with me only for us both to get a stomach upset. 
You don't remember that I gave you two children, she said. Pompey, I said, what are you saying? You have children. They are your children. You are the one with the children, I told her. You've inherited them, like everything else. If I had a stroke instead of Chandrashika, you would have moved in with him. I asked her what rubbish she was talking. Did you just wake up from a bad dream? Is this about Charu and Pratik not visiting enough? Oof, Baba, they come every week. I don't know what you are on about, I told her. I told her all these things. Don't turn on the lights, she said again, as my hand moved again toward the light switch. You don't want to see me like this, she said, so low I could barely hear the words. I felt the way I do when I slip and nearly fall in the bathroom and imagine my bones breaking like so many of my fellow acquaintances and family who've reached their elder years. Pompey sometimes has episodes, gets angry, forgets things, but this felt strange. This felt bad. She didn't say anything after that at all, and all I could hear was the whining of mosquitoes coming in with the gloom, the familiar traffic sounds from the distant main road riding the warm breeze from the veranda, the hard cawing of crows on the sills calling for the sun to either come back to the sky or hurry up and leave. So I left the lights off and went to my bedroom, carefully using my walking stick to mark out my path, and switched on the light there instead. I was so confused by the whole conversation I entirely forgot to make any tea. Surely she had been sleep-talking while taking a nap. Maybe she's in one of her moods, missing Chandrasekhar terribly. Every day at five or so, when the load-shedding usually happens, I sit at my desk by the grill at the south-facing window of the flat. I sit with my tea, some water, my medicines, my plate of glucose biscuits, my pen. Charu has got me a ballpoint pen now that I have trouble refilling fountain pens, though I still prefer those. And my diary. They all sit on the desk, which used to belong to Chandrasekhar, and still smells faintly of his pipe smoke. Kalpana brings it all to me. She's a good girl. Charu and Pratik hired her. Her mother works for them as a maid, and her father cuts hair on the footpath near their building. Sometimes I wonder if I would have already been dead by now if it weren't for them and Kalpana. When I thank them by saying things like that, they get irritated. They don't know how unappealing it is to be helpless. I once left this country alone with nothing but my accented English and my mother's knitted winter clothes. Now I can't even leave this flat without feeling like it might be too much. Kalpana has to bring two old women in a city flat their tea and biscuits and groceries and meals, dust the furniture and mop the floors day after day. No school for her. She must be so bored, the poor thing. I let her watch the TV with me and give her some extra money when I can. When she sits on the floor with her knees tucked under her chin, watching the soaps with me, I wonder what it would be like if she were my daughter. If she were an orphan, could I have adopted her? Probably not with her cast. Charu and Pratik used to sit on the floor on hot summer days in the huge living room of the old house when they were children. They'd sprawl at their mother Pampi's feet, listening to Chandrasekhar's gramophone play Hindi songs. 
I would be filled with envy watching them, willing them to come sit by my feet instead. They never did. I was just mushy, not ma. Even though Kalpana will never go to school or sail, well, fly now, across the oceans to university in England, she will at least get married once she's old enough and have children unless something goes wrong. Even she has her destiny to fulfill, unlike me. When her parents send her back to their village to be wed, she'll no longer be able to work here. I think how I will miss her. But then I realize that by that time, I probably won't be around any longer. I don't usually read the pages after I write here. But when I try, I can't. My handwriting is bad. I can't make out all of it. I can't let Charu or Pratik see this. They'll worry about it. Or maybe I'm the one worrying too much. I can't seem to remember writing some of what I am reading. When the power goes out, I can see the whole neighborhood go dark. The low skyline of stubby buildings with their pipes and TV antennae, and rooftop clotheslines going black against the blue of the twilight sky. It feels like the city has gone to sleep, closing its electric eyes, or perhaps like it has passed away unexpectedly. I can hear the old ceiling fan go dock, 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 until it accepts its powerless fate. The sound of fan blades and the sudden silence is like a scythe swinging above my head. This reminds me of that movie with the knight playing chess with death. I think death had a big scythe in that. I saw that movie on video cassette recently with Charu. She and Bijoy drove me to their flat so I could watch on their TV with the cassette player. Very sharp. You could even read the subtitles properly. I hadn't seen that film in so very long. The first time I saw it was at Lighthouse Cinema a long time ago. The actors and actresses looked so beautiful against the screen, though the image from the projector was faded and flickering. It was raining when we came out of the cinema hall. I went with Pumpy and Chandrasekhar, as always having no husband to take me, and under the cloudy light, New Market looked silver and grey, like the world behind the big screen and the thick velvet curtains. I felt warm as we stepped out, despite the spray coming into the cramped area by the box office. Pampi said she didn't understand the film. I felt like she had understood plenty, but was just pretending not to for her husband, to make him feel smart. Chandrasekhar started to list all the movies by that director. I just wanted to talk to my sister about the film, tell her all the things that had made me feel, but he kept talking. I felt like plucking them apart and pushing him into the puddles by the footpath. The perfect husband and wife pair. And there I was, no one to hold my arm and tell me about who directed what and from where in Europe. I had been to England, I wanted to shout at him. I had voyaged in a ship as big as an entire neighborhood, seen the broad blue road of the Suez Canal under the late summer sky, greeted Britain's shores in the rain studied and lived in a foreign country in the heart of the empire, and come back with a degree just like his, albeit in English instead of chartered accountancy. But still no husband and daughter and son for me. Not even the English boys would dance with me at the socials, a short, ugly brown girl from India, instead of an exotic oriental princess. 
I came back a woman with an education, but still, I was just a girl to everyone, because I had no husband to hold my hand and lead me into adulthood. And there, Chandrasekhar was to greet me as I got off the train from Bombay, handsome and hair-slicked, and an utter stranger to me. And there Paloma was, with the blooms of love on her cheeks. My sister, a wife and mother of a healthy boy, belly round with a girl on the way. I cried, and she cried, and we held each other right there on the dirty platform of Hara Station. But I felt like I was crying from pain, not happiness, even as my parents waited their turn to hold me after years, their beaming smiles filled with hope for a future where there was a man by my side and a baby inside me too. In my heart, between my hips, I knew the future. I had come back not with the pride I was hoping for alongside a degree from Oxford for my parents to tempt suitors and their families with. No, I'd come back with a secret like a black fruit plucked from the mouth of an English gynecologist with a bedside manner as cold as his hands. The monstrous pains that plagued my periods meant that I might be infertile. So I returned with shame, with the future held in the ache below my belly the future where my parents would give up on finding me a husband, because at least Paloma and Chandrasekhar were there to give them grandchildren. I was a lost cause. I was damaged goods shipped back, sullied along the Suez Canal. I wanted to shout all these things at Chandrasekhar, as he pontificated about European cinema, while Pompey looked on starry-eyed, her face damp from the mist of raindrops drifting against the sheltered steps of lighthouse cinema, I thought, why did she look younger than me, leaning against her man, when she was the older one? The power just went out. This eye is swinging above my head. I call out for Paloma, ask if she's awake. No answer, so she's probably napping. Kalpana answers instead from the kitchen, asking if I was calling for a lit candle. I tell her no. Puppy sleeps too much since Chandrasekhar went. The pain has lessened with age, but never goes away. Now the doctors give it a name, endometriosis. Their tone when talking to me is always one of judgmental solemnity, as if this sickness is a curse given to me because I never found a husband, instead of a curse that prevented me from getting one. Or maybe I have always just imagined this in their voices. I still take homeopathic medicine for the pain, on Pompey's recommendation. I don't bleed any longer, of course, but the throb of the baby I will never have sits eternal in my womb. Strangely, my heart remains healthy. The pain there, of a love I will never have for a husband, untethered from my flesh. Sorry to end it there, gentle listeners, but we'll be back with part two of A Shade of Dusk in our next episode. But if you're enjoying it so far, you can still give it a five-star review wherever you listen to our show. Until next time, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 82, features A Shade of Dusk, Part 1, by Indra Promit Das. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Angela Yee and Devin Shepard. An executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Mary Osadolahi. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Nicole Otto. Performed by Sharomi Arsario. Audio edited by Corey Barton. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Osadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.